Welcome back to the Unstressable Podcast. I'm your host, Alice Law, and this podcast is a series of amazing conversations with incredible people talking about what makes them unstressable from some of life's greatest challenges and the greatest stresses and losses they've had to overcome and how they came back from them so that you can become unstressable through yours. In today's episode, I'm joined by the wonderful Polly Bateman. Polly is a mindset and performance mentor. She helps you to come back to understand the relationship with yourself properly so that you can truly live your best life. It was such a great conversation and I loved all the different tangents we went on, including listening to Polly's incredible personal story, what she had to overcome to now do all the incredible work she does. She has such a wonderful sense of humor and talks about some really tough and deep topics in such a wonderful, lighthearted way. Um, We talked about piecing together how we get coded as humans and so much more. And I really hope that you enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for um, agreeing to come on the podcast. It's so wonderful to have you. I'm so excited to talk to you about well, many things today, but um, particularly your own story at the beginning and everything. So thank you so much, first of all, for, for joining us. Um, You're welcome. That, you know, I'd love for you, you know, to start with, just tell us a bit about how you came to do the work you now do before we go into all those amazing things of mindset and all sorts of things, subconscious blocks and more. Um, how did you even come to this place? You know, what was that journey for you? Such a great question because everybody has a story of some sort, right? And I definitely, you know, I, I, I left my childhood a little bit traumatized by it. Uh, a little bit lot. And I was quite um, an un, uh, sort of insecure young woman. And I found people quite dangerous to be around. And I decided that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and keep people as far away from me as possible and not work for anybody, which is what I did successfully for 10 years. And a chance conversation with someone said, I know a job I think would really suit you. And it was working within the military setting uh, for basically service personnel when they are human down and their family members. And it was in locations around the world. And it had that adventure and excitement to it. Plus, they did a lot of on-the-job training. I thought, you know what? That sounds quite fun. I'm going to give that a go. And it was in the process of doing that. I'm like, oh, my God, I really like people. And I don't know if it's because they were naked and in bed and below me in some form. (laughs) And I felt empowered. But I genuinely started to realize that I, I cared a lot about human beings and their well-being and their welfare. And I enjoyed the work. So I think it woke up that, that side of me that actually I had something to offer here. And really freakily, I started to notice patterns in human behavior. Even on elective wards, their issues would so be like so patterned and so similar that I'm one of those weirdos that can look at a picture and see another picture in a picture. And so I started to see what was not presenting as obvious. Uh, One of my skill sets is what's not being said. (laughs) And so 
which scares people to death, including <laughs> mo- mostly my husband, though, because he's like, wow, it's like you're a witch. But um, I, I just have this intuitive understanding. And when we grow up very closely asso- associated with fear, our intuition is stronger, for sure. That's something, actually, there's a brilliant book called The Gift of Fear by a guy called Gavin De Becker. And he grew up in a great state of fear, and he says it grows your intuition exponentially as a result. So, um, and the point being is I did this journey, I did this training, I did the the work for five years working with um, Defence Medical Welfare Service and loved that role. And when I met and married the military person, I said I would never, ever marry into, but I did. Um, And I always joke, I married for love in this life. Next one, I'm coming back to do it for money. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, who would want to marry into the military? You have to, you have to move all the time, which I hate moving. I have to move all the time. You know, who would want a mobile life? Oh, here we are. So I, um, I felt that it was natural because Tom wasn't going to train up as, as anything else. Tom was in for life. And I was like, I need to find another another way of, of earning money that helps me be in a mobile lifestyle. It felt really natural to train up as a coach. Now, I spent 11 years coaching and I'd done a couple of coaching courses. I'd done NLP practitioner. I'd done an international coaching uh, health coaching certification, psychoneuroimmunology, that whole mind-body connection. But I got to 2016. I was 11 years in, quite experienced, could command a good fee working for people, particularly if I was based in London, whenever we, you know, in our various moves. And I suddenly realized that my life didn't work. And I was like, why am I thinking or daring to coach anybody in this situation? My life doesn't work. And this is because at that point, the only child that we had, which was as a result of several miscarriages. So it wasn't that I only wanted one child. It was that I was only able to have one child. And I was six miscarriages down at that point and another one in the bank, but didn't know it. And my husband went away for a whole year and our only child started boarding school as part of that whole thing that you do when you have a very transient lifestyle. And I was... Like my son, I'll never forget sort of, you know, checking in with him, making sure he was comfortable. This is what he wanted. He was like, you know, mommy, I am entitled to a life, you know. (laughs) I was like, I know, I know. And when I dropped him off, it used to be me sobbing as I drove down the driveway, like, oh my God, I just don't don't have a purpose without my boy at home. Um, And I just became very clear that Tom's gone away for this whole year. My son is loving it because he's suddenly got a family of, of brothers in many senses. And uh, hang on, what's going on with me? Maybe we go shopping on Thursday. Yeah, maybe. You know, and it was, I walked the dog every day and my life was empty. And I assumed at the time, because it's always so much, it's so much easier to blame someone else. It's so much more fun when we could put it out there. But the reason that I didn't have a great coaching practice at the time was because, mm, well, you know, kind of busy. Um, and I'm like a wife and I'm a mum, and we move all the time. And it's probably the army's fault if I really look. In fact, actually, no, Tom, husband, I think it's your fault. You move me all the time. So I had this excuse for not having the practice that I wanted, not being where I wanted as my life, my circumstances and everything going on outside of me. So in that year when I was like, "Mm, my life doesn't work, I reached out to a seven-figure earning coach and said, what am I missing? Because I I do have balls and I was prepared to reach out. And he said, "Mm, you can only take your clients as deep as you've gone yourself, Paul. And it sounds like you haven't been deep enough. And you're like, (laughs) oh, 
you're so right. And that's so annoying. I'd done course after course after course. I read book after book after book, but there was something missing. So I did a deep dive. I cleared any client um, off the books and I did a deep dive for 18 months where I literally did nothing but study and threw myself into what made Polly Polly? How did I get here? What makes me do what I do, think what I think and feel the way I feel? And that deep dive revealed through multitudes of courses, courses on how to get out of the way of yourself, courses on how to find out how you became, you know, just courses, books and everything. I discovered kind of, or pieced together from lots of different things, how we get coded as humans. And that was a moment, like Scooby-Doo, oh, I have to teach this. Because I suddenly realized that when we don't know how we've come to be in this very moment, then there's nothing we can do about our life because we are just the way we are, right? That's just how I am. I just don't like speaking publicly or I just don't like those things. And it's never, ever, you know, what we think it is. It's always as a result of some coding. But we love to think it's existing outside of us. And we're coded through two major things, cause and effect. We were learning that when we were little. I pushed the cup over the milk will spill out or the water or whatever. If I stand up, I'm taller. If I bring my fist to my mouth, I can bite it. And you remember those moments where a baby bites itself and then cries because they hadn't learned that they were responsible for their own, like, you know, pain like that. Yeah. Um, or that they had, they had teeth, like, wow. You know, the mother's there going, yeah, tell me about it, right? You do that to me all the time. <laughs> but, you know, there's the point where children learn cause and effect. And later on, with our limited brain capacity, we are interpreting the circumstances we find ourselves in, where when the effect is unpleasant, we assume we are the cause. Because we don't really know how to process it any differently. We've got a limited developmental age of understanding. And the other thing that we are coded through in our primary relationships, and there's no blame here in what I say either, but is right and wrong. And sadly, as children, when we learn wrong, we learn shame. And so there's a kind of morality attached to right and wrong that becomes deeply uncomfortable for human beings, which is why we want to be right. Like, we'll die to be right. (laughs) You know, political parties are about this. Groups are about this. Society is about this. And any argument in a romantic um, or familial relationship of any kind is that one person's trying to prove their rightness. And, you know, it just becomes so uncomfortable for us to be wrong. And those two things are the core coding moments for us as human beings that we spend the rest of our life trying to cope with. And that's really untidy. (laughs) 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 To put it simply, I mean, massively simplifying it, but essentially that sits at the root of everything. I love that. I think that's so interesting that you say that we're so uncomfy with being wrong because it takes a lot for people to admit they're wrong you know we all know that from everyone for that person to say put their hands up and say okay sorry that was me that is like you say it's our innate quality it's our innate sort of programming to try and be like well I'd rather be right but okay fine maybe I'm wrong (laughs) and so there's a humility in that isn't there and that's really where that comes from well there's also three awarenesses that we have which we have from a super super young age and those three awarenesses they're kind of essences that we have really young in life the first one is am i am i safe we just need to know we're safe and this is as a baby we know babies know when they're not safe 
Um, the next one that comes into our awareness as an essence, it's not a conscious knowing, it's just an essence of being is, am I loved? We know when we're not loved. And then the third one that comes in as toddlers is, am I enough? Now, today, as a fully grown adult, we may think we're arguing about the dishwasher, but ultimately the only thing that is actually triggering you and activating you in any way is one of those three things. Like, don't tell me I've put the glasses in wrong again, because then you're pointing out I'm not enough. And it kind of works backwards. If I'm not enough, then you won't love me anymore. And then I'm not safe because I'll get thrown out of the tribe. It's a, it's a primitive thing for us. But essentially, think back to anybody listening. You know, think back to the last argument you had with anybody and which one of those three was it? Because it's only ever one of those three. Am I safe? Am I loved? Or am I enough? And those are the fundamental uh, foundational underpinnings of any argument that you'll ever have in life. Oh, I love that. I mean, I've heard the I am enough on and safety in terms of, you know, psychology, but I'm loved, I'm safe, I am enough as a three is makes so much sense as that like primal basis for everyone to be working from, continually <laughs> reacting from or responding from if we're trying our best. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. All, these, all these things. So that whole experience, obviously, for you from going, um, you know, realizing that you didn't have the life that you wanted and feel enough at the time to now being in this place where you're doing all the wonderful work you're doing in that in your whole sort of experience of life, I always ask people this question on the podcast, what would you say was the greatest stress or loss that you had to overcome personally? Mm, oh, greatest stress or loss. I love not knowing the questions as well because it has to get your juices flowing, right? My greatest stress uh, was essentially unknown to me. It was a blind spot, but I was totally disconnected from myself. I didn't know how to like me and be with me. So that was the greatest stress. My greatest loss was probably the loss of that relationship with myself as well. The loss of all those years when if I had just been my own friend, if I had just been able to be with me, if I had just liked me, I could have probably been so much further along the road than I am now. And yet I also know that perfection exists in how everything is. I have real faith in that because those years of angst and anguish, that pain, that crippling self-consciousness, that imposter syndrome, that inadequacy that I felt as a being has truly served me as a coach. So yeah, I've blossomed later as a result, but I'm okay with that because maturity and then clarity have come together in a sort of like, I still feel like I'm 25, <laughs> you know, if I'm really honest. Um, but uh, absolutely. Um, so I do still feel like I'm 25, but do I want to go back and learn it all again? Oh God, no, thank you. No, no, I'm staying here. Thank you so much. <laughs> I would not want to go back through that ever again. <laughs> so if I do, I'm taking back my mind with me, if that's okay and everything I've learned. <laughs> Take all the good that you've learned. Don't want to go through yeah. it again and unlearn. <laughs> no, God, lie me. No, please. It was hard work. But, oh. you know, and it served me beautifully. But, yeah, I'm, I'm cool with where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, growing up as well, I mean, I've read, you know, some of the stuff you put online about how you had a troubled upbringing and surviving sort of domestic abuse. And what was that experience like for you to come through? Because you've obviously come through the other side now into this incredible, you know, sense of yourself, sense of the person you wanted to be, healed those kind of wounds that takes a lot of hard work, as everyone knows who's ever done that. So what was, what was it that brought you through that? 
So I'm super resilient. Kids are. And I learned to be resilient as a child. Um, I also had this deeper knowing, which I think some of us can be slightly uh, older souls in some way. And I'm not saying I am an old soul, but I feel like an old soul at times. I remember having this awareness that this had to stop with me and that I'd have to do the work. I just, I used to look at the handprints on my legs sometimes and think this stops with me. I do not want to continue this on. And I'm not always perfect on that front because coded into me is certain behaviors and reactions that I have to work on all the time and keep present. But my stepfather um, is the one that introduced a lot of very aggressive and violent behavior. So we were, uh, there was a domestic abuse in our family directly emanating from him. And I think what's got me through it as well is as you restore your relationship with yourself, you know, when I was younger, I hated him. I was angry at him and I felt like he'd robbed the best years of my life. And I was angry at my mom for not getting rid of him sooner. She did eventually get rid of him and get rid is such a, such a way of describing it as well. I was angry at my own father who was biologically my father, but nothing more and had never been in my life and not paid any maintenance. And I was thoroughly aware of that as well. So I was angry with him too. And then I was angry with my mother for her weakness in it all. You know, like, how could you have put up with this? I wouldn't let this happen to my child. Because you're so idealistic when you're younger as well, you know. And then there was a moment when I was 28 when I thought, God, my mum had three kids at this age. I can barely get through the day myself. (laughs) So way to go. She had three kids in an abusive relationship and she held it together somehow not great sometimes. And she wasn't the sweetest of souls to be around on a bad day. Right. But she was having a really tough time. Um, and I really got that she coped with a lot and I began to have an awareness that sat outside of me, which is you're, you're you're meant to be selfish when you're growing up. That's part of the process. You grow up and you, you become self-aware slowly. And then the awareness creeps outside of you. But my biggest thing I think was growing empathy when I began to restore my relationship with me and like me, I began to like everybody else. You know, we're, we're constantly creating life in our own image anyway. So when we are angry um, and we are like every relationship outside of you is a reflection of the relationship you have here. So when you can be, in fact, I say this, the level of empathy you have for other people directly correlates to the level of empathy you have for yourself. Mm. I love that. I think that's such um, that's such an interesting an interesting take on empathy because I mean I'm an empath, so I'm I'm you know I'm all down, <laughs> down with empathy. Sometimes it's overwhelming to me. You know, I'm the kind of person who, um, if someone I love is going through something, I probably feel their pain and I'll start crying with them, even <laughs> even though yeah. it's not mine. <laughs> so it can be great, and it can also sometimes you know be a bit be a bit overwhelming sometimes. But I think. Like you say, the the whole idea around empathy of how it's again what like we were talking about before, how far are you willing to have taken yourself before you can go there for someone else and that reflection. Um is such an interesting, such an interesting point. So I mean, that's an amazing sort of it's such an incredible struggle to have gotten through. And do you do you now obviously your life must seem like a sort of very far off you know, distant image to what it was back then. Um, what has been the sort of greatest yeah, teachings you took from that awful time? I, uh, so I'm really proud of the fact that I have no bitterness and no anger 
towards any of the people involved. You know, when I took the time with myself, I was able to recall conversations from my stepfather. You know, essentially what has somebody use violence is is a, a desperate insignificance, a desperate inadequacy and a, and a deep pain. And it was very clear to me that he'd had a troubled upbringing himself. It was very clear to me that he'd also had a lot of violence and experienced a lot of violence himself. You know, sometimes quite aggressively and viciously, he would say, you know, I was told to come down the stairs and put my hand out and I would have my knuckles wrapped. You know, and it was as if that was something that could be... Um, Purport, you know, like as if that was a, a trophy almost. He was wearing his pain. And at the end of the day, it's when I, as an adult, was able to process that information, I was able to go, wow, he, he was struggling himself. He was in pain himself. So my empathy increased, you know, and human beings, we get upset about stuff. And there are things that are unforgivable for children, for sure. There was definitely things that through some therapy when I was in my 20s that I was like, yeah, that was not okay. That should not have happened around a child in any way, shape or form. And this was beyond physical abuse. This was other stuff. And it was like, yeah, that that doesn't happen. And then I had my own son. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was really not okay. You know, it's like, but it, mm. I'd normalized it, you see, growing up with things like that. It, it just showed me how lost that soul was. And it showed me there was deep pain there. And judging it doesn't, doesn't help anybody. It just perpetuates. So, I'm not, you know, there are, there are people who've grown up and they have been horribly sexually abused. And I get how difficult it could be to listen to this conversation and have empathy for their, their person, their per, you know, who hurt them. There are things that should never, ever have happened. And it's a case of getting through it and saying, where can I grow from this? What can I do about this that's okay? What, how can I make this so that um, I don't want to continue the cycle? So mm. how can I grow through it? How can I transcend this? You know, and there are lots of people who have suffered great abuse um, and they go on to be very kind parents, you know, very thoughtful human beings because they have an insight into pain in a whole other way. You know, they don't, you don't have to carry this forward. And if you are struggling with it and you are recognizing behaviors in yourself that you don't like, that you were a victim of, get help. It's okay. You're not a bad person. You just had some really dodgy coding. So get help. Dodgy coding. I like that expression. It's such a good way of, um, of putting it. But I think just to go back, I mean, what you were saying there, I think when you were saying about forgiveness, it reminded me of... Um, that quote that says, you know, forgiveness is for yourself, not just for the other person. It's not for the other person, it's for yourself. And I think that's such an important thing for people to remember that the longer we um, hold on to the things that have been done to us or wrong to us and by others, the more we actually hurt ourselves because we're holding on that toxicity inside us energetically and emotionally. Um, yes. So I think that's such an interesting and powerful yeah, thing to say. And let me just, I'd like to just add something about this because for a long time I was like, I can't forgive. I'm not forgiving that because forgiveness was really messed up in my head. I had forgiveness as making it all okay. Mm-hmm. And like, it was not okay. Okay. And when I learned that forgiveness was not making it okay, but forgiveness was actually accepting it. I was like, oh, I can do acceptance because did it happen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and am I still I'm here 
So we're okay, you know, pat down. Yep, we're okay. I've got everything I need. And here's the thing, right, for all of the people out there who've suffered with perhaps things growing up that shouldn't have happened or were were far from ideal um, growing up. Um, At the end of the day, I just want to say that, you know, if you can accept that stuff has happened, it doesn't mean you're making it okay. It just means that you're accepting it. And then, you know, know that you've grown through it. Know that you can come from it. It's, it's like um, the acceptance part was like, oh, I can accept that for myself. You know, did it happen? Yeah. Am I okay? Yeah. I didn't need to bang the drum anymore, if that makes sense. You know, it's, it's not just a, part of the reason we get angry and bitter towards people because we can't accept something's happened. We don't want to accept it. But just accepting it's happened and knowing that you're okay and that you're here and that you can make changes Well, that's the beginning of empowerment because the biggest thing that a person who's been a victim feels is disempowered. And I recognize now that I get out of bed for two reasons only, to empower people and to free them. And it literally, if it doesn't, if it doesn't happen, that's not happening in the project or the thing that's come across my desk. And that's why I do these podcasts and things because it's like somebody will hear this and it will land for one person maybe, and it'll empower one person to know it's okay. It's okay, you're not alone, and you can get through this. Because for years, I held on to stuff, and I didn't understand it was just acceptance that I needed, and acceptance set me free. And acceptance is part of forgiveness. And then I was like, oh, well, I can do it then. Now I can do it. Now I'm not saying, it's fine, it doesn't matter that it happened, because it did matter. It really mattered. It altered my life forever in some ways. But, you know, there is also, wherever one one element exists whether it's left then there will be right if it's up then there will be down if it's pain then there will be pleasure you know and we grow as human beings because of the polarities and every single polarity lives inside of us we are all polarity so you know when we put people up on a pedestal we are denying brilliance that lives in us and when we judge people we're denying something that's not so great that lives in us because there's a murder a murderer a sinner a saint in all of us It's just, what's our price? What's going to push us there? So pretending that we're better than is never the thing to do. Yeah, I love that. It's only to just be with you. Yeah. That that there's one of those in all of us. Because people may be listening to this and being like, I am not a murderer. And it's like, yeah, obviously you're not now. But the reality is that from various different circumstances and different, like you say, codes, wrong codes being programmed the wrong way, anyone is capable of anything. It's really about how we manage to... uh, notice and hold ourselves from those so let's talk about the past Polly because not your past but just the past because we talked about your past it's amazing but your whole work is obviously about this exact thing you know how do we let go of our past to stop it essentially completely messing up both our present and future because the reality is there's a lot of people running around doing it exactly that and not even realizing that it's their past that is the reason they are struggling right now that that's the reason they haven't faced certain things so for you how do you say you know how can we stop the past controlling us in the present and the future so the first thing to do is to accept it's here <laughs> so let me let me give an explanation that I like to use I love I love to use this example if you're a child in a classroom and you've got your hands up and you love this teacher and you're desperate to answer and you get it wrong and everybody giggles you're going to think twice about answering next time, right? Because an experience has gone in and your brain has stored it as something to avoid because the brain is built for survival. 
So the brain is constantly taking situations that have occurred in and around you and your life and constantly basically making them so that they are something that you can either um, to avoid or to lean into. So let's just take that six-year-old and let's add 30 years. And now it's a 36-year-old in a meeting and they have basically, um, their, their, their mindset has weighed up everything and they have decided that they are, um, the boss is in a bit of a bad mood. That plonker from marketing's just come in. And then the person that maybe fancy is in the room as well. Your brain is doing calculations the whole time designed to keep you safe. It's weighing up the situation. It's projecting forward into what could go wrong if you spoke up and got it wrong. And it's working out if you got it right. And it will be informing you silently in nanoseconds, having calculated the risk, what you should and shouldn't do. And the way it manifests for us is we say things like, yeah, I just didn't really want to speak up today. I didn't feel like it. And we think that that's us. It's never just you. You free is the most self-expressed person ever. Ask a four-year-old to go into a nail bar and order a pizza. They'll skip right on in there and get ordering. You know, (laughs) the people in the nail bar might be confused, but they'll go straight ahead and do it. Ask an adult to do that. Watch their stuff come up. No, why would you do that? They'll think I'm mad. You know, all our stuff comes up, all our coding comes up to be dealt with in that moment. And that's the point is just know that your past is in existence. And the point is to learn how it controls you and runs you because you can't manage it if you don't know how it's managing you. And your identity is formed through ways of being. Like, so the way that that child learned to be in this given scenario is to be cautious about putting their hand up. Now, come on, everybody, right? Walk into a classroom with 17-year-olds and ask them a question. How many put their hands up? Because they've all learned that lesson. They're all like, oh, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So it's just a coding moment, right? They got coded to be cautious over something like that. And of course, there's always the one that throws the hand up in the air because they've had the experience of always getting it right. You know, they're more confident and they're more foundationally strong for, for the different reasons. So... If we understand that the past is here dictating you to stay safe in all occasions, then you begin to become conscious of things. And I got that, you know, do I get vulnerable? Yeah. But the difference is I don't keep it in like some dirty, filthy secret. I just out it. I literally speak it. I'm definitely going to talk to you about vulnerability because (laughs) (laughs) when I watched Brene Brown's, you know, TED talk on um, vulnerability Mm. and courage, I was like, well done because oh no wonder it went viral it was so needed right exactly it was so needed because we have this innate you know problem with humans that we don't want to be vulnerable for those exact reasons we're so scared of being shut down rejected or whatever form it is and so we keep our you know inner thoughts our inner hearts really you know our hearts wishes inside instead of expressing ourselves and what I think a lot of people don't realize which I've started to realize growing up is the more open I am and vulnerable, the more that reflects back to the person I'm with and the more vulnerable they'll be. But it's having the courage to be that first person. So what is your take on sort of vulnerability and, you know, people using it as a tool to better their life rather than something that should be shameful and hidden? So vulnerability is so misunderstood, you know, and Brené Brown has done some great work on it. And particularly what I love is when she uses the example of having spoken to a room full of soldiers And she said, tell me any one of you, put your hands up if you didn't feel vulnerable when you were under fire or under great moment of threat. 
and was courage attached to vulnerability? And they all agreed it was. You know, we are all vulnerable when we put ourselves out there in any way, shape or form, putting your head above the parapet, both militarily and just metaphorically in life is, is something that it takes. And I will notice when I feel vulnerable and I'm like, oh, I feel a bit vulnerable doing this. And then I'm like, oh, where's that come from then? You know, and I quickly unravel it because I'm now incredibly practiced. But even before, you know, I just got that. Okay, so somebody could laugh at me in this moment when I said that or they could question me. Yes, but that's more on them than it is on me. And I don't just throw it over and make them wrong because then that's just more of the same old poo that we had in the first place, right? <laughs> I'll, you know, which I always say, it's just pushing the poo around the plate, isn't it? It's, it's like, yeah, I get it, that they would probably question this because of their fears and their concerns and their coding. So you can kind of see the end state for people. You know, and I love to tell this story and I, I don't think he ever knows I talk about him, but years ago, I say years ago, it's like two. I, um, I well, a bit, three, four years ago, I decided that I was grown up enough now to put myself on LinkedIn. That was previously <laughs> my imposter syndrome had always said that's for people with real jobs, <laughs> not for you know those of us that are self-employed and stuff, unless we've got a mega business. And I finally put myself on there, and I did a couple of LinkedIn campaigns and picked up clients, and it was cool. I also got really rudely spoken to by some people who, you know, one guy even took a screenshot. He went to, um, he was a, a credit facility agency to check your credit worthiness and he went and basically took a screenshot of I think it was like my credit status and then took a screenshot of his and just sent it back to me with the line so you want to coach me I was like not massively anymore (laughs) but but actually also it was like but you really need it dude if you want to go around shaming people like that then there's something in you that's so defensive so yeah I had a few rude replies but I really learned with those ones to not take it personally that was on him not me that kind of behavior like gosh you are very cynical about being sold to and you're very scared of having a conversation about your vulnerabilities mister I got it you know so I actually just write back to people like that. So I'm really sorry you felt that that was the only kind of reply that you could send in these circumstances. I don't justify it in any way. I just say I'm really sorry that you felt so vulnerable in that moment. That was not my intention. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to reply. And I bow out gracefully and just leave it there. And it usually leaves them, sometimes they'll write back, go, I didn't, I didn't mean to be rude. I'm like, you did. <laughs> but thank you for taking the moment to let that land and think about it because you really did mean to be rude. But I, um, I was trawling through my messages one day and there was this very corporate message and it was crazy figures. This lovely chat from this sort of very uh, together gentleman saying he was an investment banker and he was saying, you know, these are the kind of people that we invest in. Uh, these are the sort of projects we look for. We want a wholesome partnership going on. We invest a minimum of 25 million going up to a maximum of 250 million great British pounds. That was like, whoa, where's he writing to me? And I showed it to my husband and went, what's he saying? And my husband looked at him and went, darling, he's asking if you'd like investment. And I was like, oh, brilliant. So I started writing back and my husband went, what are you doing? So I'm saying that would be lovely. Thank you very much. And my husband, because he's military, they have to have a plan for everything. (laughs) Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. You can't do that. And I put my phone down and said, why can't I do it? And, you know, don't get me wrong. There was the small part of Polly too, the old part of me that feels inadequate going, yeah, you probably shouldn't, you know. (laughs) And But I questioned it because I manage my identity now. I manage me. And I said, why can't I? And he said, well, because you don't have a plan. And I was like... I know, but if he writes back, 
you can bet your bottom dollar I'm going to get an effing plan. (laughs) And so, you know, guess what? My husband and I are now great friends with that with that that investment banker and his wife. We meet and we talk and we have plans together. And he is talking about genuinely investing me. And we are looking for somewhere to create as a beautiful center for leadership and human potential growth. How exciting is that? And that's I would have pushed that away. I wouldn't have dared to see that opportunity once upon a time because I had it that I that that LinkedIn space, that's for grown-ups. That's not for people like me. It's for all of us. We've all got something to offer and to give. So, you know, it's, it's growing through those. And d- the whole point of this was, did I feel vulnerable? Yeah. <laughs> After I sent it, especially, I was like, oh my God, if he laughs at me, oh, you know. But he actually wrote back and said, I'd love to meet you. I'm sailing around the Mediterranean at the moment. I'm like, of course you are. Of course you are. <laughs> of course, what would I expect? And, and then I was like, okay, I'd like to go with my husband. And that was a kind of security blanket for me as well. But, you know, it was the combination of the two of us that had him really sit up and listen. And at the end of him explaining how stressful his life had been in corporate, why he'd moved over into banking, and then the conversation that followed, he said, I'm really interested in what you're doing. I want a better world for my grandchildren. And I was like, you know? And I remember standing on the pavement outside this fancy club that we'd been in where I'd had the best pea soup of my life in this <laughs> Michelin star place. Um, and literally said to my husband, God, I think our lives just changed. Now, that change still hasn't occurred in the way that one might uh, think through to the end, but it is unfolding. And I had changed as a human in that moment. I had stopped seeing what I had to offer as, as so, I mean, I'd already stopped seeing it, otherwise I wouldn't have reached out to him, but it, it cemented that belief again. Ha, huh, I've got something to offer in the world. This is great. And it's about keeping moving forward, you know, keeping moving and not stopping because of your vulnerabilities, but moving forward despite them and with them, own them. I love that. It's um, like you say, it's almost like the acorn seed planted at the beginning of this whole adventure you're about to go on and are continually going on now with it so it's it's so cool um I think like you say just being able to move forward with your vulnerabilities and not let them hold you back but just be curious about them you know like you say what would you what would have happened you know if you had said no what would have happened if you hadn't believed hadn't responded or hadn't believed that you know he would want to invest in you or vice you know vice versa? It's so it's so interesting and it's such a such a great story as well. I love I love those kind of things. Well, me too, because they're the moments that make you go, "Huh, oh, maybe I could do that," you know. And the figures that he's talking about putting into this project are eye watering. You know, they are literally like. Oh! you know, which is so exciting. But also actually those figures have become normal to me now, you know, as in that normalized itself as well. And suddenly um, I was like, okay, so if we're talking about that, then look at what we could do within that time frame and within that space. And, you know, and actually we were messaging each other recently. There's that program out on Amazon at the moment, Nine Perfect Strangers. Oh my God, I'm obsessed. I watch the whole thing. (laughs) So he was like, um, I think you should watch this, but maybe we won't follow quite that protocol. <laughs> so I was like, I was watching it avidly going, yeah, we're definitely, I'm a real fan of things that aren't necessarily always legal and that really help people with depression and stuff like that. I am a real fan, but I recognize I have to be careful in my conversation there as well. But, you know, I, I also get that um, we need to push these boundaries for mental health. We need to push how people, and, you know, people do talk about psilocybin mushrooms being 40 years of therapy in four hours. There's a brilliant program about it on uh, BBC iPlayer 
and I think it's called it is called the psychedelic drug trial that's really worth a watch as well which is um a less glamorous version of my imperfect strangers <laughs> but similar similar results <laughs> so no I, I think that's um it's so interesting I, I think that when you look at all the clinical trials they've seen with people microdosing mushrooms or um even things like mdma for trauma and soldiers who've gone through these awful experiences in afghanistan or wherever the results they've seen is incredible and for ptsd and things like that so again it's all about the open mind as you said Polly. yeah 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 <laughs> and, 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 and actually it's an open mind that i think has helped me have a lot of peace with my you know, the various people growing up who were present and not present. So, for example, when I finally got back in touch with my dad, which was in 2016, when I had this whole deep dive, or began the deep dive, it didn't finish till early 2018. What I got was I became very clearly aware that I had a father who had PTSD. Mm. And that he'd clearly had it for years. He was a Special Forces Reserve soldier. And he has said some pretty horrendous things to me, which show that he's still trapped in that space um, about things that I just don't even want to repeat because they're not pleasant. But it was all to do with killing people and stuff like that. And he is clearly still traumatized by it. And then suddenly that made sense to me like, oh, no wonder you struggled to show up, you know, in any way, shape or form, financially and wholesomely and, you know, and didn't believe that you had much to offer in life because he was also, he was a trauma-filled individual as well. Um, and then I could see he had a bit of dementia because he tells me the same story several times. Um, and, and he still bangs on about my mum. And like, we're like, come on, we're 40 years down the line. I think you can let that go now. But he still has unpleasant things to say about that. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, bless. You're like, you're so bitter and caught up. And that helped me understand him better. And I just saw that there was a lot of pain there. And pain is what causes people to not be their greatest self. Because we get distorted from who we truly are. We get disconnected from ourselves, And then we can't show up powerfully if we're not connected to us. We can't, rest- if our, it's our relationship. That's what I really do is I restore people's relationship to themselves. And I've worked with people who are athletes and founders and CEOs in the same process. And your companies thrive when you restore your relationship with yourself because every single thing you do in life is just a reflection of, of what, what's going on here mm, I love that like you say talking about pain I think it's really it's an interesting thing for people to think about that you know maybe someone who's really pissing you off at the moment <laughs> or really you know upsetting you what that person might be going through um not that you can see but just something else that has nothing to do with you something to do with could be a small circumstance in their life could be a large one but we all handle these things in very different ways don't we and what affects me might not affect you and vice versa so how do we sort of step into that space of like real empathy of like probably as the old-fashioned expression goes walk in someone else's shoes you know when people say okay I understand from their point of view well, do you actually understand from their point of view or do you understand from their pain? You know, and I think that's a very different thing. I think there's a really great shortcut to that, which is to get that nobody never did anything that didn't make perfect sense to them, right? So in making perfect sense to them, they are in a position where they are doing something that they have very solid and valid reasons for doing. So that is, that's something to, to just recognize and understand. And in doing that and recognizing and understanding that they've got a good reason for doing it, even if we can't understand it, just recognize it doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter what you think you know, that you just don't know. You don't know how they got coded. Okay. And if we just accept that we don't know how they got coded, like they don't know how we did, and they don't have a true understanding and they don't have the capacity to really understand why we do what we do. Because every single one of us has done things sometimes where we go, I don't know why I did that. Why did I do that? Um, And in the moment it made sense to you, but two minutes later it didn't. And that's pretty normal. That's exactly what happens to human beings all around. We're all sometimes just coping and surviving and doing what we can. So the greatest thing to understanding why people do things is to get that you don't know. (laughs) The shortcut to it (laughs) is just, just be with I don't know. You see, our brains love to label and compartmentalize stuff. We love to understand. That's why we gossip. I can't believe he's going out with her again. Why do you think he does that? Why do you think he always picks those sorts of people? And we'll make up all sorts of reasons based on our thinking. We'll constantly chat things through to try to understand. And you see, the brain is a bit naughty. It doesn't actually care if you find the real reason. It just cares if you find a reason that it can relate to. And it goes, yeah, that's it, that's it. And it makes the cat fit. And that's because the brain then gets a little rush of like, well done, now we've understood the threat. Now we can relax, we can park that one, whether it was accurate or not. So people, two people can watch the same show and decide different things about it. You know, and we understand that our biases uh, will absolutely filter things in and out. So, for example, there was a, a, a group of people that got split in two and they were both given the same piece of paper. And in separate rooms, they were both told, these are your aspirations as a group. And this paper totally supports your aspirations. The other group believe this. And I want you to pick out of that, this one bit of paper, how your group is supported and the other group is, you know, basically rejected. But both groups were told the same thing and both read the same piece of paper and both came to the conclusion that their viewpoint was being supported and the other group was being dissed. And it was exactly the same piece of writing. You see what you want to see. I love that. It's such a good example because it, it's so true, isn't it? We are just, we all, you know, obviously because of the way we're wired from survival mechanisms of the past, we're just programmed to see the negative more than the yeah. positive. Um, just, just, just get you don't know. You don't know why people do things. People do things for all sorts of queer reasons. My grandfather used to have a great saying. He was a Yorkshireman. He'd say, oh, there's an out as queer as folk. <laughs> and it was such a lovely saying. It's like, yeah, everybody's weird to you and you're weird to them. So just that's get we've all a, got our own reasons. Such a Yorkshire phase. I'm from Yorkshire. My family are. And that is such, <laughs> such a Yorkshire phase. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well so I was born in Yorkshire I was born in Pocklington <laughs> Wait, oh my gosh I my I'm very my family are very close to Pocklington in a village oh, called Ellicott so yeah very very close um yeah ah Yorkshire that's actually quite rare for those listening because most people say you meet someone and someone else is like oh they're from Yorkshire I'm like do you know how big Yorkshire is it's the biggest county in the UK it's huge it's not like you saying Oh, they're from, you know, the same village as you. It's so funny. People do that to me all the time. No, you're right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It is very rare. And I'm actually literally about to go back up to Yorkshire as well. So um, I'm about, and I have family in Sherbourne and Elmert, and that's where my grandparents lived uh, for years. So that like growing up and going to cities like York and Leeds, I still remember them when they were pretty basic places. York was always quite glamorous, but mm. Leeds was an absolute bog hole. <laughs> and now it's nipples fabulous. and it's everything. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing now. <laughs> so I would love to talk to you about manifestation. 
because mm. I know that's something that you also like to talk about. And I think manifestation, obviously, people hear the word, word manifest and they either have one of two reactions like, oh, yeah, I'd like to manifest. I can manifest anything, maybe. Or most people as well are like, well, that's a load of crap. You know, how do, how do I manifest anything? So how do you get people into a process of successful manifestation, for example? Mm, great question. So you're constantly manifesting. And what I love to do is I like to make it much more science-based. Having a military husband has been very useful in some senses because he's quite a hard taskmaster. And when I sometimes have done some of my more coachy stuff, he'll look at me as a what are you talking about, woman? Put it into English. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, let me go in again here. <laughs> and then when I land it for him, you know, I feel smug as the cat that got the cream. And he's like, ha, oh, that was a great point. Um, so you're always manifesting, but you manifest directly in relation and correlation to your view of yourself in the world. So, you know, one of the things that I love to teach people is like their first money memory and how they keep it alive today. And when our brains are wide open, I was actually talking to someone today. He's my accountability partner. No one knows who he is. So I don't think he'll mind me using this example. Um, he, he had a relationship. His first relationship was with somebody, basically, it was unrequited love. And he kind of had this impression of himself like, oh, that's for the cool guys, girls like that. I can't have what I want. So he spent a lot of time like hankering after somebody he couldn't have. And today he recreates that in life by hankering after people or the relationship and having the relationship he wants. So even the relationship he's got is on somebody else's terms, not his. And it's not about it being on your terms in terms of this is how it will be. You know, it's just in terms of like we have to have our needs met in a relationship. Otherwise, it doesn't work for us. And there are gaping holes where his needs are not being met. And I challenged him today. I said, to, can I just take you back to your first relationship? And can I just have a look at that with you? Because that's when you're wide open. It's an unlearned experience. And that first moment that you experience everything in life is an imprinting experience. So like the duckling, if it sees you and not the mother duck, you're the parent. That becomes the parental experience in a way. It becomes the lead experience that everything else falls out from. So I invite people to consider. Most people, when they talk about manifesting, want to go to money uh, and, and lifestyle. And lifestyle, at the root of that will be money in many senses. What's your first money memory? You know, and if you think about your first conscious money memory, how does that get created in your life today? Because on some level it will be, um, you know, and I, I, I'll tell a funny story. She, she will remain nameless, but she's a great friend of mine. And her first money memory was stood in the sweet shop with her sisters with her 50 pence trying to work out what the best value for money so that she got the most sweets um, and equally had the ones she liked in her bag while her sisters were just like grabbing and like putting it in the bag and you know, they were just cracking on with it. To this day, she's a nightmare to go to a restaurant with because she scours the menu for ages looking for the best value for money. <laughs> I'm like, I have to threaten her. In a minute, I'm going to order you eyeballs and tongue if you don't order something. Because you know? <laughs> so, like, we're hungry. We'd like to eat today. But, you know, that is still going on. And she constantly looks at things for the best value for money and stuff. So there are lots of different experiences mine I didn't I have no idea where my money memory came from in terms of I don't know what the backdrop was to it but there was a moment which I can clearly remember I stood at the end of the checkout fretting about money 
thinking, God, I hope my mum's got enough money. And it was back in the day before you could scan. There were no barcodes. You individually put the pricing, you know, £1.24 for your can of whatever. And and I just stood there getting more and more uptight, thinking there's not going to be, she won't won't have enough. There's not going to be enough. There's not going to be enough. To this day, my husband and I sat one day doing some like dreaming. We were having a Friday night drink together and we're like, what's our dream lifestyle? What do we really want? And let's go mad. And we built this 40 million pound lifestyle over the next two hours. And what was absolutely hysterical was that half an hour later, I was like, I don't know what I was doing, clearing up or something. And I went, do you know what? I'm a bit worried it won't be enough. (laughs) It's like a 40 million pound lifestyle. I keep that alive, you know? And it was just us fantasizing about winning the lottery or something. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was so funny to see it pop up in me. Now, there is, there is a brilliant book actually that addresses this that some people might be interested in. I'm trying to think if I've got it nearby. Yes, it's normally nearby. This one is called uh, Psycho Cybernetics, which as you can see, it's heavily marked for me. And this was written by um, a Maxwell Maltz. He was a plastic surgeon and he noticed that some people would have a little bit of surgery done to some disfigurement And what he couldn't quite equate and wanted to truly understand is why did their personality change? Because they had something rectified. And it was about what you believe about yourself. And it was a really good thing. You know, whilst you and I could probably go, well, that's obvious, right? If you've got a face that hangs off at the side and, you know, you don't feel normal and don't fit in, of course you're going to be withdrawn and and self-conscious. But it's a really great point. Why would your personality change? Why would you become confident and outgoing and happy when previously you were sad and shy and retiring? What's the, what's the switch? And it's all down to the self-image that you have, who you think you are. So what we do is we manifest according to our self-image. And we manifest, like we create our life in our image. So manifesting is a very misunderstood word. You're constantly building based on your perceptions of who you are. Like, like running the four minute mile. Do you remember when nobody could do that because they thought their bones would break and then somebody did it and they were like, oh, actually I haven't crumbled. So it's a perception. People couldn't run that fast. Now look at them, poof, they're off. (laughs) You know, you can't catch up. Yeah, exactly. So the whole thing is everything is produced within within your sets of beliefs. And I always talk about the fact that, you know, the placebo that is given in medical trials, all double clinical medical trials have a placebo put in place and a a, a drug has to perform better than a placebo to be passed. And a placebo is based on a belief and beliefs are known to be at least 70% effective. Now that's huge. That's huge. Right. So what do you believe about yourself? Because you will manifest in accordance with that. So you'll get maybe, the, let's go with some very sort of stereotypical stories. You've got the kid that's grown up on the, on the tough, rough council estate. And he's a happy-go-lucky lad. And he says, I'm going to get out of here. I'm not going to live here. I'm going to make this work. And he's got this little, he's got that lovely, ignorant, like blissfully ignorant belief of maybe how tough the world could be. And he goes out and he starts wheeling and dealing a little bit. And he starts making money. 
We all know these stories and he makes a bit of money and that increases his belief. I can make money. I thought I could and I can. You know, you've got to have hope to start with. You hope you can. Without hope, we're all dead as human beings on so many levels. Hope underpins everything. And then we move into that kind of, yeah, this is going to work. There's a kind of faith moment. Like, I really think this is going to work. And then faith turns into knowing. So it goes hope, faith, knowing. Neil Donald Walsh talks about this in Conversations with God. Um, and he says these underpin everything, hope, faith, knowing. Mm-hmm. So it starts as hope. That's what puts refugees into boats to cross dangerous seas. That's what a child dreams about for Christmas is hope, is based all on hope. And then sometimes we do have much more faith. Like I've learned to develop hope into faith. When I can't see why everything's happened, I trust it's all good because it's always been good. Hindsight gives you the perfection that you couldn't see in the moment. So if everything's perfect in hindsight, then it must be perfect now. And I have to have faith that it is and that it will unfold for me at some point. And it always has. It always has. And then that comes into knowing. The more you practice hope turning into faith, then faith begins to become knowing. I know that I will pull this out of the bag. And it's interesting, you know, when my back's to the wall on something sometimes and I've taken a risk or a gamble uh, on something because I want to grow as a business or something like that, I know, I actually genuinely have got to a point where I know it'll all work out. It may not work out as I wanted to sometimes, but I do know it'll work out. And I know that things that I didn't know will be revealed to me and I'll have great learnings in that. So I have a lot of faith as a result. I'm so glad you brought up the word faith because I always love to end the podcast with this question, which is what does spirituality personally mean to you? Because for me, it means something different to everyone in their own way. And that's the beauty of spirituality. So I always love to know what does it mean to you, Polly? Mm. So as a girl who, who found herself in a church as a very young girl and felt the peace that was in that building, and I was, I was left alone on my first few visits, but I think the vicar got curious as to why I kept going and sitting in the church and eventually came over one day and got chatting to me and invited me along to the service. And, and then I, I sort of became a religious follower of Christianity and got myself baptised um, and got myself confirmed and went to Sunday service. And this was a, around the age of 12. And then at 15 was like, what a load of shit. You know, if there was a real God, he wouldn't have let any of that happen. You know, as the hormones started to to surge around me and I kind of definitely moved away and turned my back on it all thinking there can't possibly be a God, you know, and all of that. But then I've now come to a place that's much softer (laughs) and I've come back round to understanding that I really believe we're spiritual beings having a human experience. I really believe that all religions... My husband tells me I'm a teleologist, which I means I believe in the essence of all religions in in many senses. And, you know, how come they all basically say the same thing? Because they do. Like, be nice to your neighbours. Don't hurt the animals. Don't don't shag your (laughs) neighbour. Be good about money and all of that. So they have the same tenets at their core on many levels. And and, and some of them have um, peculiarities or anomalies that are specific to them. Um, And, you know, people who practice them and revere their religion, you know, usually do very well on that. But essentially, how come all these different religions popped up? You know, which God is right which, which is it God or a prophet? You know, who's right? There is no right and wrong. It's all made up in the human interpretation. What I truly have come to believe is that the source energy, source energy is big, it's powerful, it's amazing. Um, I think that when we tap into it, that's when we're in flow. 
I think it's when we feel our power, when we are innately wise, we are innately intelligent. I believe that we are um, totally connected and that there is a balance here. It just unfolds in ways that we don't expect. And people rage. They waste so much of their life raging in one direction or the other. And actually, if we just calmed enough to listen, to listen in here, you can hear very clearly and feel that connection. So for me, spirituality is in being connected to source energy, which is to yourself. Because mm. you are, we're all from the same place. One day we'll all be the same colour. I love that. And I totally believe that as well. And so for that connection, how do you get back to that connection yourself? Do you have your own spiritual practice that you keeps you in that connection with your own source and with source? So, yeah, I'm not a very good meditator, um, even though I know it's really good for me. I've got such a busy brain. I'm definitely probably high functioning ADHD because I'm an <laughs> entrepreneur and that kind of goes with the territory to many, to many is an extent. But I do have, I know that emotional states with your being in a meditative state is very important. So I use, I really maximize that time as I'm going to sleep where you start to feel all dreamy and sort of all like marshmallowy in your head. <laughs> I, I spend a lot of time there with what I want and what I'm creating in the world. And the same when I wake up, that's another very impressive because you're in a different brainwave. So I know to go to those places straight away, like what am I creating? What do I want? How am I going to be with it? What do I need to learn about this? What do I need to know? And I get a lot of clarity and insight in those moments. And I also use music. For me, it's music. It moves my soul. It rouses me inside when I get a beautifully moving piece of music. I'm particularly connected to a version of Ava Maria at the moment that literally mm. makes me want to cry when I listen to it. So there are lots of versions out there. This one is deeply ethereal and spiritual. And when I listen to it, it just comes up like it's almost like a chest sort of, it's not a pain, but it's a deep chest feeling. And I feel very connected in that moment to energy and to knowing that all is good, all is well and trusting in the process of life. You know, So for me, it's connecting with music, having time with Polly, She's a good egg. And actually, I quite like hanging out with her. I, I used to not like her very much. And now I'm like, she's all right, you know. And I, I recognize that also it's not the conscious poly. There's a deeper soul poly that's part of source. And if I slag her off, I'm slagging off everything I've ever come from. So to be with that, it's not even really poly. Poly's an identity. It's just a being. And I feel very connected to source when I take that time to be with myself. And I'm very good at just being. My husband is a nightmare. When I say, can we just stop? I just want to take in the view. And it's about 30 seconds in. He's like, come on then, baby. Let's get going. Come on then. Because he's military. So we're always moving, right? Tabbing along. I'm like, can you just shut up and let me be for a minute? So Look at the moon, for God's sakes. <laughs> yeah, like literally just absorb it, please. Whereas, you know, do we have to climb a mountain right now? <laughs> so, so from that, I have actually spoken to him about this and like taught him, I'm just being. I just want space and time to be. And sometimes that means in silence, just being with nature and like listening to the birds, feeling the sun, feeling the rain, whatever it is, just be. Take time to just appreciate. That appreciation, going back to manifestation, it's so important. You know, there's something out there, people may have fun Googling this, called Hawkins Scale of Consciousness. 
And that's where they measured vibrational states. And it shows that shame and fear and hatred all sit at the bottom of the very low and like not, um, not pleasant. It's a very low energetic state to be in. And gratitude and love and enlightenment sit right at the top. Hang out in a high vibe and you can. Because a high vibrational state is who you truly are. You were born in a high vibrational state. So be there. Don't be with all the other stuff. It just drags you down and it really screws your life up. Oh, I love that. And it's, it's definitely so true. I mean, you can feel it, can't you, when you're in that place of fear or jealousy or resentment that you're not that person that's, you know, bringing in the things that you like and not that person that's drawing people to you in a room. Whereas when someone's happy and grateful, you automatically are drawn to them. You know, they're that person that you want to be around. So just... It's um, magnetic. Yeah. So that's magnetism right there. And that's, and that's what manifestation is really. Manifestation is magnifying what you want towards you, not repelling it away from you. Oh, I love that. Oh, Polly, it's been so amazing talking to you today. All your pearls of wisdom and knowledge, it's been so great. We've gone to so many different places. So thank you so much for sharing your story and yeah, all the work you do. I'll obviously put in the show notes where everyone can find you and um, find more about you if they want to. And uh, thank you so much. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a lovely chat, actually. What a lovely way to spend the afternoon putting the world to rights. <laughs> exactly. It's like sometimes having podcasts is like having a cup of tea with someone that you get to meet. It's so nice. <laughs> yeah, like it's having a deep and meaningful, isn't it? Right? Right. Like <laughs> from the straight from in. The <laughs> Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with the wonderful Polly. If you did enjoy the episode, then please share it on social media and tag us and let us know. We would love to hear from you. I'll see you next time with another incredible guest to help you to become unstressable. Stay tuned.